Right, so good evening everybody and a very, very warm welcome um, to, the, um, to the LSE but to the uh, Migration Museum Project third annual lecture. Uh, my name is Barbara Roach and I chair uh, the trustees of the Migration uh, Museum. Can I first of all start by thanking the LSE very much indeed. Um, this has been a, a great partnership and we're very, very grateful uh, to them for all the work they put in with us to making sure um, these events go so smoothly. Um, can I say that I have been looking forward to this evening with a great deal of interest and excitement and it's really interesting just looking um, at the numbers of people who've turned out and there have been people on a waiting list as well. Um, you can actually see how fascinated people are with the subject and how much people are looking forward uh, to this evening. Um, we're very, very pleased that uh, Kishwar Desai has agreed to deliver the lecture and we're also very, very grateful, Kishwar, that you've travelled all the way, um, that you've come over from India especially to do this. Um, I'm not going to introduce Lady Desai in uh, detail. I'm going to leave that to our chair um, for, for this evening. Um, but just to say that she has been really the driving force be behind the creation of the Partition Museum in Amritsar, India, which opened earlier uh, this year. And this couldn't be a more important time to look at this subject all these years, all these decades on, and to look at what lessons we can learn. I'm also absolutely delighted that Dr. Sheila Nasta um, is with us to chair this evening. She is a distinguished friend of our Migration Museum. She is the co-author of Asian Britain, a photographic history and author of India in Britain, uh, which looks at South Asian networks and connections between 1858 and 1950. Um, she's extremely uh, uh, distinguished. Uh, she is currently a professor of modern and contemporary literature at Queen Mary, the University of London, and is also uh, Emeritus Professor of Modern and Contemporary Literature um, at the Open University. Um, just um, a, a little bit before we go on, and as I say, uh, that our chair for this evening is going to explain exactly how this evening is going to be structured, but just um, a little bit about, um, about us, about the Migration Museum project. We are a small organisation, but with very, very large ambitions. And our ambition is to set up uh, the UK's first national museum devoted to migration. And we want to tell the long story of migration into and out of the country. And that's why the starting of your museum is such an inspiration to us. And what we want to do is to contribute to a much more reasoned debate about these issues about migration, which we see um, on our front page of our newspapers. Um, there'll be leaflets um, on the way out, maybe on, on the chairs telling you about us. And also there are members of our team in the audience uh, this evening. Could you just put your hands up, both our, both our staff team and our trustees, so please... Do speak to them um, afterwards. They'll be very, very keen to talk to you. We need your support. We run a number of events like these and, and exhibitions, uh, an education programme and a very active online presence. Can I encourage you, we currently have a most fantastic exhibition 
we have a temporary space in Lambeth, 26 Lambeth High Street. Uh, the workshop, uh, the exhibition um, is on there. It looks at seven moments in migration history. Um, they're what we think are seven significant moments. You may well disagree with them and think we should have put others in. Please come along and disagree with us. We want the disagreement. We want to have that lively um, uh, discussion to make sure that that comes about. Just a, just a very last practical point um, or two. Uh, we're recording uh, this evening because eventually um, it will be available uh, to be downloaded from our website um, as, a, as a podcast. And also for you, for those um, who tweet, the hashtag is LSCMMP. Um, it's on there. Um, can I just sort of end just my remarks by um, saying once again how thrilled uh, we are to, ha- to, to have this evening, how much we're looking forward to it. And very, very importantly, to thank both our speakers and our chair, uh, Kishwa and Sheila for, for, for doing this, for giving up their evening, for all their preparation to the LSE, but also thank you so much for coming along uh, to actually listen to this. And we hope that if you're not already uh, converted, we'll convert you into being champions for our uh, Migration Museum as well. Thank you very much indeed. Good evening, um, as, and thank you, Barbara, for that very lovely introduction. Um, I'm going to be the chair. My name is Sushila Nasta. I'm a friend, as Barbara has pointed out, of the Migration Museum, which I think is a wonderful project and is very close to my heart in terms of what it does in Britain right now, where this topic is of crucial significance. Um, But tonight, um, Lady Kishwadisai is going to talk about the Partition Museum, and I just want to say a few words um, about that and Kishwadisai before I hand over. Um, So, as all of you will know, in August this year, there were two major events in Indian, British, and world history, and they were marked by the 70th anniversary of Partition of the Indian subcontinent and also 70 years since Indian independence. While there's been much coverage, as I'm sure you saw on the telly and in all the newspapers in Britain, of this subject, especially around the actual anniversaries, um, there's never before been a material attempt to collect together oral histories, artifacts, photo records, archives, to create a kind of collective people's consciousness of that past and that cataclysmic moment in Indian and world history when one of the largest movements of peoples occurred. Few survivors, I think, of that original moment are still alive. In fact, my father was in Karachi in partition and moved to Bombay, um, not in any trains, or his father got them all out beforehand. But I think, as I know, so many Indians and Pakistanis often report virtually everybody in their family has had some relation to this movement. Um, So... Few people are alive, but it's a wound in the soul. And it's not unlike the effects on human life um, of many other such violent moments in history, whether in the Middle East with Israel and Palestine, after the Holocaust in Germany, or Hiroshima, or 9-11. And whilst there have been many museums already built to commemorate those moments, there's nothing really been done 
in India. And this is really a very, very important moment for Indian and Pakistan history. So this is going to focus on this and the partition of the subcontent. But I'm sure the content of this will resonate with all of you and the plight of so many in the contemporary world with the refugee crisis as well as divisions continuing in the Middle East and fault lines growing in the UK as I speak and the US with Brexit and Donald Trump. Um, So I'm sure there'll be lots of food for thought and what happens in the aftermath of such partitions and I think Kishwar is going to be engaging with all that. So without more ado, I'm going to say a few words about Kishwar before I hand over. Um, So... Lady Kishwar Desai is the chair of the Arts and Cultural Heritage Trust that has set up the world's first partition museum in Amritsar in the Punjab. And as many of you will know, the Punjab was very seriously affected by partition. The museum has just won a yet-to-be-announced award for excellence. It receives hundreds of people daily already, and on weekends the figure often reaches 1,000. Um, Lady Desai is also an author and columnist who writes regularly for newspapers and magazines, and her books, fiction and non-fiction, have been published in different languages. Her novel, Witness the Night, won the Costa First Novel Award and was part of a trilogy of novels dealing with gender issues in India. Her critically acclaimed non-fiction book on cinema, Darling, the True Love of Najis and Sunil Dutt, is a secular story of Indian cinema about a Muslim film star married to a Hindu actor and their deep love for each other. So it also gives a history of Indian cinema. She wrote an award-winning play entitled Manto on the life of Sadat Hassan Manto, whom you might know about, the Urdu short story writer, and she worked in Indian TV for over 20 years. Um, Recently, she's helped her husband, Meghnad Desai, fundraise and set up the Mahatma Gandhi statue at Parliament Square in London. She's currently working on a book on Indian cinema as well as one on Indian history. And as you'll see from that short bio, there's much more we could have said. Um, Much of your work, I think, has to do with storytelling in different forms. And in a way, the Partition Museum is about people's stories. So, and I think she'd like me to say that she has two children whom she considers her best achievement. So this lecture is going to include some images, a short film... And then Kishwa is going to speak as well, speak to you for about 40, 45 minutes, and then we're going to have a brief conversation and then open it out for general questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, and I really am very grateful for the Partition Museum Project and for LSC for giving me this opportunity to talk to all of you today, and thank you for abandoning whatever you were doing today and to come for this uh, talk. And I do hope uh, that you will become supporters both of the Partition Museum as well as uh, the Migration Museum Project, because we really, as Sushila just said, we are talking about stories and these stories are all our stories and this is uh, about basically what we're doing is telling history but uh, from the bottom up you know like in the sense that it's been often said that history belongs to the victors but certainly in our case in the partition museum uh, what we have done is told the stories of the people who were 
actually the forgotten uh, when the uh, you know people when the history was written because it all became about Gandhi, Nehru, Jinnah, and their um, you know uh, sort of discussions with each other and Mountbatten and Radcliffe and so on. But we forgot what partition actually meant for uh, the millions of people who are affected by it. So I will uh, speak to you about my uh, journey, the journey of our team in uh, putting up the Partition Museum and what we learned uh, 70 years um, after partition has happened. Um, but before that, I want to just show you a short film which will give you an idea um, about the museum. It'll show you some visuals from the museum. And it'll also give you an idea of how it has suddenly become part of the popular culture in India. I mean, the museum has been accepted uh, by the people so much so, as I, I won't reveal it, but you'll see a clip from a popular game show where it is also referred to. So I'll uh, request you to play the film, please. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Get out of the way. You're right to death. Which city is the world's only partition museum dedicated to the partition of India located? Option A. Lahore B. Chandigarh C. Karachi D. Amritsar. Yeah. 
That's a short film uh, which we put together for you. And um, as you can see from the opening clip, it is something which seems to have sunk into the uh, consciousness of most people because Kon Benega Karodpati, that is that uh, game show which, which you saw right in the beginning, is one of India's best loved and most popular show. Uh, so we ourselves were very surprised and taken aback when it came on this. But um, it was also a kind of um, uh, reassurance to us that what uh, we are doing, and we are a very, very small team. Uh, we started uh, this journey uh, only about a couple of years ago. Uh, but before I start on this journey and telling you how we reached where we did today, I just wanted to say that um, when we look at the, some of the lessons that we have looked, uh, you know, we may have learned in the last 70 years, uh, one is definitely that today when you uh, seek to divide or you seek to divorce or you seek to do anything, uh, most governments go in, as we have done here, is for a referendum. You know, they do not just decide that, oh, today I'm going to divide up this country, and it's not the leaders behind closed doors who take these decisions. So 70 years on, yes, perhaps the world has learned something, but unfortunately the divisions 
within society still carry on. So some of the lessons have been learned, but I think uh, not fully. And uh, one of the mandates of this museum is definitely to make people aware that once these, uh, these kind of uh, divisions are made, and they're made uh, with force and with violence, uh, they kind, these kind of wounds last for a very long time, and we have to be uh, careful. Uh, the second thing uh, which a lot of people asked us when we started um, working on this, and this is again something, a lesson that we took away, is that they wanted to know that why was there silence? Uh, certainly when I started going around talking about the fact that I would like to have a museum on the partition of India, the first uh, reaction from a lot of people was one of, uh, you know, oh no, you can't do that, you know, it, it, it's just, it's a no-go area, it's, it's a place where you know it, uh, terrible things will uh, will come out and etc etc. Uh, however, when we went to the people who actually have been through partition and we started recording their stories because we said that let's try anyway to learn and to understand, even if it is going to be just for a small group of us, a small team of us, and we would like to put up this museum in some shape or form. And we started doing our interviews. The other lesson we learned was that most people wanted to speak because they were by now in their 80s and 90s. Indeed, if they had not gone through the, the horrors of partition uh, themselves because they were too young at that time, but they had seen their own parents suffer. And somehow they felt that the, in their whole story of, the, of the, uh, when India got its independence, the people who lost their homes, their livelihoods, their families, uh, uh, you know, their mothers, their fathers, those stories were completely forgotten and left out of history. So when we spoke to them, in fact, one of the, a couple of people we spoke to uh, in London, we spoke to people in, in Delhi, we spoke to people in Calcutta, uh, in Punjab, everywhere it was the same thing. They would, they would have bottled this up for a long time, and whilst they were talking to us, they would cry and they would say it was like a catharsis uh, for them. And so we learned that, you know, silence is not the way, you know, especially today when we need to confront these very difficult issues. Uh, so was silence therefore then something that was imposed upon them? And I do feel that somewhere because we uh, connected partition so much with the violence, we forgot that there were so many other things which happened. What about the homelessness? What about the refugee camps? What about the people, what about the children who died? Uh, what about the way they migrated? I mean, didn't we owe them something or didn't we owe ourselves uh, also uh, this very little um, understanding in order to share their pain and in order not to make the same mistake again. So uh, surprisingly, when we did an exhibition, one of the first things we had done in, in Delhi was an exhibition on the refugee camps. And that was the time when we realized that there was no material that we could go to, no, uh, no research had been collectively done even to just identify where all the refugee camps were. Yes, they were sporadic things which were happening here and there, but no one had done it on all the spaces where the camps had been. So it, 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 as a matter of fact, the history that we were trying to put together, a large part of it was already being erased as we were trying to put it together. So that was another sad lesson that we learned. Um, 
The silence also made us think about the women who uh, had been sometimes raped and abducted and uh, then uh, taken away by what was then uh, sort of an enemy uh, person, I mean an enemy of theirs who took them away and they were forced to live. Uh, for example, we had so many instances which we've come across now where women were taken away by force uh, and were forced to live in Pakistan, they were taken away by force, forced to live in India, changed their religion, etc. Now we came across, for example, a very interesting story which was actually shown on Pakistan television and I was very touched by it because, and, and so would all of you be if you saw that, because this was a story about a 90-year-old woman who goes with a Sikh jatha. You know, like you understand, these, these, are, these are groups of people who go to visit the Gurdwaras, which have now been left behind in Pakistan. So there's a 90-year-old woman who goes with this group to worship at a Gurdwara. She travels from India to Pakistan. When she gets there, she asks around and says that I have two sons. I have, to, and she uses Muslim uh, names. Uh, I think one of them was called Ikramullah. And she says that I have two sons who are somewhere here in this region. I would like some help to try and locate them. It's an amazing story of how she then gets reunited with her sons. And this is something which happened recently, because at that time she was very young, and uh, when she had been abducted, she changed her religion. She married into this, uh, this Pakistan, uh, the person who is now in Pakistan, his family, and she had two children. But then, when the pact was reached between the two countries, India and Pakistan, that you know, abducted women would have to go back to their families, and we would, uh, you know, have the system going on. She was taken to the police station. Apparently, she didn't want to leave, but then she was asked to, uh, you know, go home. And she, as a result, she never saw her children again. And now, at the age of 90, she was finally reunited. So. These are real stories which we are documenting and putting into the museum. And it was very interesting to see how the interview, the person who was being interviewed on television was the person who did the reconciliation, who found the two sons, and he was crying. He was crying and saying, you know, this is one of the most... I may not do anything good in my life, but this is the best thing I could have ever done, was reunited that poor woman with her children, whom, of course, she would not uh, see again because once, or maybe they would not meet so frequently because once they had met, she would go back to India and they would stay on in Pakistan. So we have to think of these human stories. This is what the museum is all about. It is not about being a Hindu or a Muslim or a Christian or a Sikh or whatever. It's about the humanitarian crisis that was created at the time of partition. Um, so what we, what we have also learned is that when people have, when people have grown up, with this kind of uh, suffering, when they have learned uh, from their grandparents and their parents that this is the sort of thing which happened at that time, that there was so much pain, so much sorrow, uh, there is a huge amount of sensitivity. And uh, I often say that ours is a millennial museum because a lot of the people who are connecting with it are young people who have grown up listening to these stories, and they feel very strongly that there should be a space where these stories can be remembered, can be commemorated, and that is, yes, another thing that we have learned. Uh, now, 
I don't think that we there, there is there is a certain connection that this particular migration may have with other migrations which have happened all over the world, and that is what yes definitely will be enshrined in the migration museum project. But there is also a very particular space that the partition museum tries to give to this particular migration because it it has remained through all these years the largest migration in history, the largest forced migration. And I think uh, some of the lessons that uh, people who come to the museum, when you do look around and you do see the stories, you yourself will be able to take away the fact that uh, why was it done in the way that it was done? So there are many questions because sometimes uh, what we see in other migrations is that um, you know people are forced to leave a particular country because uh, of an, you know because they suddenly they're a minority and they're thrown out of there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Here, people were actually going to supposedly going to the country which they belonged to. You know, it was meant to be their country. They, if they were, they were Hindus, they were going to Hindustan. If they were Pakistan, uh, Pakist I mean, the Muslim, they were going to Pakistan. But the way it was done, I mean, there was so much bloodshed and there was so much uh, um, uh, sorrow in this. And the impact that it had, the long-lasting impact both in Bengal and in Punjab have been not just of the families that were divided, not just of uh, people who are forced to migrate, but what happened to the culture. The culture was, uh, especially I see this all the time in Punjab, is that yearning, that sense of loss, and that is why uh, we, we say that this museum is, tells a story of love, loss, and longing, because the syncretic culture of Punjab was also divided. It need not have been so. Had, you know, Pakistan has happened, and therefore, perhaps there was a way of dealing with this. Perhaps, you know, one of the things the museum does is opens up that whole issue of how do we reconcile? How do we reconcile to the past, and how do we move on, and how do we create a space where that syncretic culture, which existed once, could, uh, you know, flourish once more? So th uh, that is another thing which uh, we have learned while making this museum, because everything was divided, whether it be as we said, now all the Gurdwaras for the Sikhs lie on the other side. Much of the music, which was uh, you know, the classical music of Punjab, where the gharanas were all disrupted during partition, much of that music is not available to us anymore. There are many uh, you know, almost uh, uh, you know, weird stories of how the museums were divided. Some of you may know about that already, about how the Mohenjo-Daro necklace, you know, so many beads, like 13 beads went to Pakistan and six beads came to India, and then how the uh, sculpture uh, was divided, how many uh, Gandhara sculptures would go there and how many would come here. And it was... And uh, recently I went to the Chandigarh Museum where I saw that uh, there was this uh, one foot of the Buddha which is in the Chandigarh Museum and one, I was told, is in the Lahore Museum. So, you know, so it is, that is the extent to which uh, we, we were trying to divide everything. And a lot of it was done without a sense of the gaps that it would leave in the story of the subcontinent and the kind of impact it would have for all of us, the struggle it has now created. If you're interested in culture, if you're interested in, in the historical space that both Bengal and Punjab 
the united uh, Punjab and Bengal enjoyed, and of course, indeed, the other parts of the country that were affected by partition as well, uh, then you would be really worried because a lot of things were destroyed. People were destroyed. Their careers were destroyed. Um, so that was um, musicians who went, uh, who suddenly became homeless, you know, and they, they could not, uh, they just could not cope. Um, so I think the silence may have been a preferred choice at that time, but what has been very uh, much um, of a reassurance for all of us is that not anymore. People want to speak. They want people to know what happened to them. Um, so I think what I would like to do is tell you now a, uh, a story of our journey, because then you would understand that why we were compelled almost, even though we were in initially discouraged by a lot of people to, uh, about this museum. Um, I had first started thinking about this museum almost 20 years ago. As you may have guessed by now, my own parents are also uh, the victims of the partition. They survived, and this was what they always told me. Uh, even though my mother's um, you know, father had lost everything, but she always told me, she said, but you know, at least we're alive. You know, this was, this was the way they spoke. I mean, it was okay to have lost your home, your every, every possession of yours could have been wiped away overnight. But their one thing was, at least we are alive, because they saw relatives being hacked to death, they saw killings along the way, and, and they were children. This is something that when I look at my parents and I see my mother as a 12-year-old witnessing the most awful carnage which must have happened all around her, or hearing stories about it at least. But growing up, because uh, the, the spirit of the people of that day, we have to admire that. Uh, you know, they did, not, uh, they did not go around saying, look what's happened to me. In fact, they got involved in building the new India. Um, so the point is that when I started working on this museum, one of the things we wanted to do very much was not just tell the story of the bloodshed of, and the carnage, we also wanted to tell the story of the resilience and the spirit of the people who made the two countries that they had gone to, be it Pakistan, be it India, because had it not been for them, uh, possibly uh, you know, the two countries would have suffered enormously because there was a huge economic impact of the partition, which I think still has not been realized by most of us, because a lot of people were made into penniless uh, beggars almost overnight. Even though they did not beg, they did try to lead a life of uh, a, a respectable life, but it was very, very difficult for them. Um, so the, the idea of the museum, which started 20 years ago, I was discouraged. Then again, 10 years ago, I was discouraged. But strangely enough, two years ago, uh, when I was sitting with a group of friends and said that let's, let's try and do something uh, about this, because it was, it's already too late. It's 70 years, soon going to be 70 years. And most of the people who'd witnessed partition, the older people are all gone who were adults. Now the people, the next generation that is left, they were all either in in their teens or very young or maybe in their 20s and we have to record their stories before it's too late and what is very good uh, for us was that most people in this little group that we were t I was talking to said yes we would like to do something about it but of course we didn't have money we didn't have space and uh, so we did a public meeting like this um, in in Delhi and it was meant to be 
we thought only about six people would come because we, we were going to announce the making of a museum. I mean, it was all bravado, actually. We didn't have anything. We just had an idea, and we were going to do a presentation to them about what the museum would contain. Because um, by that time, we had been doing a bit of research. We gathered some material, and, and uh, so we did this presentation. Uh, to our astonishment, 1,500 people showed up, and they couldn't even get into the uh, auditorium. And uh, a lot of my my friends are very angry because they said, you called us. I said, I called you because I wanted to fill up the seats. So they said, but well, we couldn't get in. And uh, we had people sitting on the floor and, you know, and all. And what was wonderful is that most of the audience was like the audience today. 70% uh, of them were under the age of uh, 30 or 35. They were extremely upset, I know, I'm including all of you, uh, and they were extremely, well, mentally maybe, uh, they, were, they were very upset that this had not happened soon enough. And there were many angry voices in the audience that why have we, we not done this and why have we not commemorated people who deserved commemoration, the ones who really went through the horrors that independence brought. It was not meant to be that way, but that is the way it happened. And I still remember this one young girl who got up and said, you know, I want this so much because for my grandmother, this, this, will, be, this will bring closure because she has been talking about this and she thinks nobody is listening. Nobody even wants to know today what happened to them. So this was um, their encouragement that day meant a great deal. And this was um, August of 2015. Uh, we still didn't have a place. And uh, so I, we realized, I realized very quickly that the Delhi would be too expensive. I wish I could have done it in London, but London would have been even more prohibitive. And I thought that you know maybe we could try Amritsar, because Amritsar is so much more relevant to the story in any case, and perhaps we could get something there. We were fortunate that the Punjab chief minister at that time uh, had witnessed partition himself. In fact, his family had given shelter, that is Prakash Singh Badal. His family had given shelter to Muslims uh, of that area at that time. And he was extremely empathic, uh, empathetic. And he said uh, um, in Punjabi, Bibi, tu si karoge, kar lange. Mane, if you don't do it, we'll do it. So I said, OK, fine. We are, we've come to the right place. So we did uh, talk to them, uh, and, uh, but we, because of the, the, the short time we had, we, we had to complete this museum and open it by 17th of August 2017, which was the day that the Radcliffe Award was actually announced. People mix up independence and partition and think it happened on 15th of August, but most of you would already know that actually the, the details were announced on the 17th of August, so it was only after independence that a lot of people, that's why the carnage became even worse, that they woke up and realized that they were either in India or in Pakistan, and they had no idea that that, that on the 16th, they had no idea that would be the case. Uh, so we wanted to, um, uh, you know, in, in the short time of about a, a year and a half, we wanted to get this space ready. So he gave us that building you saw right in the beginning, the town hall, um, you know, which is very well located. It is um, just about 10 minutes walk from the Golden Temple. Uh, but it was in a very bad condition. It was like at that time, it, uh, the restoration work and all was happening, but it was still a big mess. So uh, we requested them. There was a lot of negotiations which went on. Uh, 
And uh, they said that they were not prepared to give us any money for this. And uh, so being, you know, you know, you're telling the story of people who started life without money. So what was the big deal, you know? <laughs> so we said, you know, okay, so we are telling their story and we will simply do it the way they did it. You know, which is that you just go around looking for people who can support you, start something, uh, do events, this, that, you know, use the good old Indian jugaad, which some of you may uh, know about, which is a way of uh, just making things happen, you know, in some way or the other. Uh, so we did that. And it was quite, quite astonishing how the money slowly started coming in. And it, it, it I mean, it was a lot of hard work. Uh, we did a small curtain raiser exhibition, which was um, in August, uh, uh, this was, I think, in August, October 20, uh, 24th of October, uh, 2016 is when we did the curtain raiser exhibition. It was a small exhibition. Again, the idea was that if we do these exhibitions, it gives people a sense of what the museum will contain. Because again, there was a lot of confusion in people's minds that, oh, you're going to rake up wounds, you're going to you know, talk about uh, things which happen when people don't want to. It's a very dark incident, to your, uh, events that you're talking about. So we wanted to show them that this is also giving a space in history. We're also creating the historical space. Meanwhile, what had begun to happen was that we were also doing small exhibitions simultaneously through which people got to know that we wanted material from them, which we would put in the museum. And that was the way we got all the, all the material that you saw in this film, and of course there's much more, we got diaries, we got letters, we got clothes, we got utensils which they'd carried with them across the border. And what was very, very touching was that these were not wealthy people who were parting with, you know, something very valuable. These were just ordinary middle-class people who valued these things very much, not for the monetary value of it, but for the sentimental value. Because, for example, this lady who gave us a box, you know, which it, it was just a small tin trunk. I mean, when you come to the museum, you'll see it. Uh, this was the tin trunk when she was a six-year-old child and she was crossing over uh, to India with her mother from Pakistan. And on the way, she was hungry, she was starving, she had nothing, they had nothing. And she hadn't, didn't even have her toys with her. And she said that nothing, I mean, because, you know, they just had to leave overnight. And there was this house which had been burnt, and she said that everybody was going in and rummaging around and taking things and running away with it. And the children also thought this was a game, you know. So she also jumped in, and she also went in and rummaged around and came out with that tin box, which she still has. And... She brought it back with her, and she had not parted with it for all those 70 years because she said, I wanted, I thought that someday I'd go back home and I'd put my doll's things in it, you know. And she, she cried when she was telling us the story because she herself did not realize what she was doing as a child. She was actually going into somebody else's home and taking things out, which in any other time or space would not have been allowed, but it was perfectly all right. So there was a breakdown at many levels, which people at that time did not understand, but now we are trying to figure that out. And believe me, these are very painful things to understand. And one of the things, the lesson that we have learned was 
nobody has yet evaluated the mental trauma of the people who went through partition. And this is something which is not uh, probably going to be uh, something that we will ever be able to forget that we did not do this because most of those people are now gone, but the memories they carried with them are so traumatic. Uh, the day I opened the office in town hall, I had a uh, uh, you know, the Sikh gentleman waiting for me. And, and at that time, okay, what you, when you see the museum now, it's all done up. But that time it was one dusty office with things falling all over me. And I had one desk which I was sitting at and, and I was shouting at the sweeper, come on, you know, hurry up and, and clean this. Otherwise, you know, it, it was a mess. Everything was a mess. But I had this gentleman come in. He had come all the way from Jalandhar. I was at that time in Amritsar. He had come all the way from Jalandhar. Uh, he was... Uh, 70, oh no, yeah, 77, close to 80, I think, yeah, 77, between 77 and 80. And he told me the story of how they had left their village, uh, which again is now in Pakistan. And, and he said, you know, he was just wanting to talk about it because he said, you know, I've written about it, and he'd written a, a little booklet about it, but he said, nobody has asked me this, and I want to tell you. I didn't have anything, so I just took out my phone and I, and I started recording him because it was obvious that there was something he wanted to get off his chest. So he started telling me about how on the... It was not till, I think, September, sometime in September, that they realized that they were in Pakistan. And uh, this is partition has already been announced on the uh, 15th, India gets independence, 17th, the Radcliffe Award is around. But it is not till the middle of September that he and his little village in Pakistan, he said, but we didn't have radios, we didn't have newspapers, we didn't have any way of knowing. It's only when villages around us started burning that we realized that what's going on? And... Then I understood how the kafilas were formed. You know, you see those long caravans which are, um, which people... So he said, our, our village elders just got together and said, we have to get out of here. So these, they walked on. They joined the next village. People joined them. They walked on. So that's how those long caravans were formed. It was with great difficulty that they crossed over. He told me the whole story, which you can always come to a museum and, and listen to it. And when they crossed the border and they came to what was now India already, uh, they didn't know where they were going because, you know, they had not planned for this day. They had thought they would always live there. So uh, they found this house which looked like it had been abandoned in a great hurry. You know, things were still burning, things were left on the stove, chapati, this, that, all over the place. They moved in. As I said, a lot of things changed. You know, everything shifted. Values that you would never think of moving into your neighbor's house. Suddenly, okay, it was all right. And then the saddest, he said there was this man, you know, who came. And he was, he was scared. He was obviously the person who'd lived in that house. Unfortunately, he saw people kill him. And he was just seven years old at that time. And he, he really experienced this. And he said, look, we didn't have a choice because we thought he would attack us. And then we had to attack him before he attacked us. So this was the kind of lawlessness and the sort of, because the government was trying to do its best, perhaps, but it was more focused in setting up the refugee camps 
and doing the kind of systematic things which it, it thought, you know, in the bureau, nice bureaucratic ways, let's have a plan and let's have this kind of thing happening here and that kind of... But actually what was happening on the ground was completely different. And I think this is what the museum does. What we do not do in the museum is talk about uh, religions. We, we avoid that. We try and talk whatever clips are playing are talking about the humanitarian uh, things which people did for each other also. The museum also devotes a lot of time to stories where people actually helped each other and how they rescued each other in the most difficult circumstances. And these are things which, you know, when we talk about Schindler's List and so on, some of the stories stories which we have recorded in the museum are much, much alike, much like that, you know, where people have actually risked their own lives to save another person. Um, one small example I'll give you and then I'll move on to the rest of the story of the museum. Do I have a bit of time? Okay. Um, so basically, um, this lady, again, she uh, used to live in Delhi and uh, in old Delhi, her... Uh, there were two sisters, and they had a very good Muslim friend. And uh, so when Delhi was being uh, sort of, you know, cleansed, if you like, or whatever was going on at that time, the riots were taking place, etc., uh, uh, the friend, the Muslim friend, came to them and said that she told her neighbors and everybody that he is my brother. So they said, but you don't have a brother. So, you know, because they knew her. And she just insisted, and she made up a name for him. And she was just a young girl. And she said, people used to abuse us. They used to call us all kinds of names. This was the kind of everyday bravery that you saw happening both sides of the border. People saved each other. Communities saved each other. And these are the stories that we also highlight in the museum. So anyway, I was telling you about the fact that we collected a lot of material, a lot of documentation started coming into us. And um, we then decided that 17th of August is, the, is going to be the deadline. And we would have to move towards that, even though we didn't have still much money. Uh, but you know, it's amazing how people will reach out and help you if they are convinced what you're doing is the right thing. Um, I don't want to, uh, uh, you know, say that, uh, you know, we did not go out and beg for money. We did. We did everything possible. But uh, it did happen. So on the 17th of August, we were able to open 14 galleries in the museum. So 14 galleries take you through the entire story of Undivided India, what it was. Then it brings you to where and how the idea of partition emerged. After that, it takes you through the fallout of the partition and what it meant for the communities that were involved, for the areas that were involved. It takes you through the actual divisions which took place, which means the division of everything. You know, whether it was like the other day we were, we were talking and recording the story of the division of the president's uh, bodyguard. You know, the, the horse riders in India, there is the president's bodyguard, which are, um, which uh, I think they comprise of about 14, um, you know, um, people who are on horseback, basically, and they're supposed to protect the president. And so um, it was. Um, then they had to decide how do we divide this. So as usual, six went here, five went there, or some such thing was uh, happened. But then there is a carriage of which there was only one, 
with a <laughs> president emerges in, you know, like the queen does out here. So there is this carriage. So where was the carriage going to go? So there was this big debate between the Indian side and the, Muslim, uh, you know, the, the Pakistani side. What are we going to do? So then um, it was finally decided that let's toss a coin. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they tossed a coin. And uh, I just went and attended a, um, a ceremony the other day where the president was in the carriage, so it seems the Indian side won. <laughs> you know, so, so it came down to things like that when the divisions were happening. But you also have a lot of stories of people just trusting their good friends and handing over their homes and everything within it to if you had a good friend who was in, in if you were leaving Pakistan and you had a good friend there, you would say, okay, here is all my property and everything. One day when I come back, maybe I'll take it from you. And similarly, you had things like that happening here. Of course, that never happened. I and mean, people could not go back and what was gone went. Otherwise, it became enemy property and eventually the state took it over or it was distributed to whoever they wanted to. It was a story indeed of Jinnah's house because he also thought that one day he would go back, but ultimately he couldn't. And uh, his, his daughter fought a long battle to get that house, but ultimately now it is with uh, the Indian government. It is enemy property. And so, you know, things like that, they were, they were very, um, you know, uh, um, stories which, which make you uh, sort of wonder why did we go through this entire process? Why was there not uh, a better way of doing this? But, however, that was a very short period in which the Radcliffe line had to be drawn. And I think that was one of the things which also pressed us on to make the museum because we said, if that man could have divided India in five weeks, surely we can set up the museum in, in less time than that. But it was um, a difficult process. But the 14 galleries are there. But the last gallery which I want to talk about um, uh, mostly is the one which is closest to my heart, which is the Gallery of Hope. Because that is the gallery from which you all will emerge from when you come to the museum. Uh, because this, this gallery essentially talks about um, the closeness that still exists between the, you know, the two sides of Punjab or the two sides of Bengal and the sort of love and affection that still remains between the people, no matter what the governments may say. So when people go across, they're welcomed warmly. So we have put up those stories there. We have also put up stories of people's resilience. So you have stories of people like Milka Singh, for example. You may have, some of you may have seen the film Bhag Milka Bhag. It, it was made into a Bollywood film. And uh, it sort of talks about how he lost everything, his parents were killed, and, and then he became, uh, he almost won the gold medal in the Olympics, and his entire journey is recorded, and he puts his resilience and his spirit back to the, to the fact that he had lost everything, and he, he had something to prove to the world. So, so stories like that, where people are extremely wealthy, industrial industrialists today, they are extremely well off today, and they started with nothing. So we do want 
uh, today's generation who weeps when they lose their mobile phones, that, you know, if you, if you lose everything, uh, don't lose hope, uh, because you can always rebuild what you have lost. So the museum also, in a sense, while it tells a very powerful story about what happened to these people, and also has a, another very important gallery, which is the Gallery of Resettlement and Rehabilitation, which, which shows you the tents in which people lived. So we've actually reconstructed those tents so that, you know, again, uh, today's generation can go there and understand that's where their grandparents used to stay, in a, in a tiny space like that, often sharing it with two other families. Uh, so these are the things that I think when you look at India today and you say, oh, India's, you know, fast developing, one of the superpowers, etc., etc., it's very important that we don't forget uh, those people who helped us get where we are today because they are part of the history. And yes, the lessons of partition are, are very many. Some of them are political, but our museum does not deal with that. Our museum deals mostly at the people-to-people -people space. And we do hope that it will also become a space for reconciliation, uh, for people you know, meeting. Uh, we, are, we are doing a series of events, literature, poetry, etc., theater, which are constantly keeping the museum uh, alive and making it into a place where people visit, not just uh, to learn from, uh, but to participate in the kind of cultural experiences that once existed uh, in Punjab. And certainly, uh, we hope to do the same thing in Bengal uh, one of these days, if we get the money and the space. Uh, so I think, uh, thank you very much. And uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. And please do visit uh, the Partition Museum in Amritsar. Thank you very much. I'll just let um, Kishwa get her breath back <laughs> before I start off on questions. Um, I mean, that was a very, very rich discussion and one that's very close to my heart as well in terms of the work I've been doing. So I've actually been touring um, an exhibition on India and Britain going back to 1850 in the last year. And uh, the whole issue about public engagement, about education educating the younger generations I think is absolutely vital um, so just to kick off with a question obviously it's about lost memories, a museum of collective history, a different kind of peopling really a people's museum, not a monument of arts and cultural heritage that we're so familiar with that bolsters the vision of the nation in a traditional sense, so obviously you've been collecting all these stories and artefacts and so on and I know, obviously, academics have also been working on this, but it hasn't got into the public arena in terms of oral histories. But there's some very big questions around the ethics of representation and how you tell those stories and how you tell those histories. So I just wondered if you could comment on, on that and also why is it now at this present time, apart from the anniversary, the moment to do this? Because obviously it's been an amnesia in, in you know, it's, been buried and it's a kind of pain that the nation is carrying both both nations so what is it about the present moment and what about the issues around representation um, yes I, I, I think it's a very uh, important point which you raised about the ethics of the um, 
But you know, you could you could say that about just about every museum in the world, you know, because why are things being shown in a particular way? Um, what I um, felt, and I'm sure a lot of people, you know, London has a multicultural, um, you know, diverse population. People come from different uh, areas of the world, um, uh, which I can see very much in front of me today. Each one of us has a story of our own nation and our own nation. Uh, there is a way of telling those stories, uh, which you possibly could find in the British Museum. You may or may not agree with it. Uh, you may find that even though the best care has been taken uh, to put something in a particular context, uh, you may have done it completely differently were it in your particular country if you were exhibiting that. So I think uh, for me this was also to kind of break the stereotypes a little bit and to take back the narrative because what I found was that a lot of stories which have been told about India are being told, uh, you know, by scholars who are, yes, they understand India and they visit India and they do spend a lot of time, but would they be, um, would, they, would they not welcome an alternate perspective? Would they not want to know uh, what people on the ground, maybe what, uh, what Amritsar might think about, what, uh, what would be his story, the way he would view partition? You know, so for me, the ethical point was to try and tell it from their perspective. You know, I, I did not want to get into this um, uh, situation where, uh, you know, there, there, are, there are rules where, you know, you cannot actually put together a people's museum which is full of stories. Because I think that, you know, if you're doing a contemporary museum today, it has to be about storytelling. And these stories have already, a large part of them have already been published by many academics. Now, this I found very peculiar. When they, they publish it in a book, apparently it's okay. Because, you know, maybe nobody reads those books. I mean, I don't know. But it's not public. You know, it's not public. But if you take it out and you put it, put it into a museum, where just ordinary people can go and listen to the very same stories, suddenly we need to ask questions. Why is it in the museum? But hey, it's been in that book, you know, for a very long time. And a lot of people may have read it. So I think that was one side of it. The other side of it was, I do believe that there is space for local narratives. There is a space to create museums which belong to the space in which the events took place because they tell a different kind of a story. So that's a thought that we felt very strongly about. Um, and, uh, sorry, I forgot the other question. <laughs> it was really, why now? Why, why, why this now? moment? Because I know there's the anniversaries, but you know, it's been us, buried for so long, these no, kinds of I, stories. I, I think for us it was just a race against time. It was very practical. It was not even the anniversary so much as the people were going, including my dad, who's like 94 now. And we had not had a chance to record him before this and all his friends and other people like him. So, you know, time is just running out. If we don't do this, then those narratives and what they experience, which are like really authentic, you know, these, are, these are things which are not uh, being, being written by the victors, as I said. And, you know, the other thing I want to say is so when, we, when, uh, when we read history, we often say, oh, they went into, they had this meeting, you know, Gandhi, Nehru, Jinnah, 
And then uh, Gandhi came out looking like really upset and then he said something. Do any one of us know what actually went in that room? <laughs> was going on in that room? Nobody was there. No one really knows. But we accept the fact that because there is a newspaper report and somebody signed off on it, these guys were telling us the truth. We don't know. So I think, I think we need to also be a, just a little distanced from the narratives that we have been told <coughs> so far and take charge of our own histories. You know, whatever is the history you feel strongly about, go out there and tell it. In Absolutely. whichever way you can tell it. You know, you may want to make a film about it, you may want to you know, make a puppet show, I don't know, you know, but there, there must be many ways that you can narrate history. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one, one thing that, that's really interesting that came out in the film was, is obviously that it's, it's looking towards the young. There were some yeah. school kids there. And a lot of school kids come. It's yeah. amazing. And because they all tell us, now we've never been taught this before. We didn't know about this. You know, and my grandfather talks about it, but I didn't know we had to live in a tent like this. So, so much of this is uh, very relevant to them. So, uh, you know, so a lot of schools, in fact, the schools in Punjab are deliberately sending their, and, and from Delhi as well, they're sending their uh, kids to us, and the teachers are coming as well, and so are college students. So we are very, and, 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 and university professors are coming as well. And this is really astonishing for us because it's a millennial museum. Most of the people who work in our team, except for me, are, are under the age of 35. So, so it's kind of, you know, a, a nice feeling that their work, and, their, and they work very hard, is being advanced. I mean, one thing I found really interesting when we were doing this project on Indian Britain and South Asian Britain, and we toured this exhibition in India, we went to a lot of schools. And what we did, and this relates to what you're saying, we wanted to give a different version of history from what was in the Indian textbooks on their, the equivalent of their GCSE or, or whatever. And so what we did with the six formers was we gave them British Library archives, just archives, no, no narrative, and we got them to read the documents and to try and write... That's more or less what we are doing. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, so that's... All the documents. So that's a wonderful, I think, wonderful thing. But I want to just turn now to... You mentioned in your talk that you might have put it in London, this partition museum. I know. Um, I know. But, but I just want to think about it for a moment. We've been having lots of programs on television here about Britain and partition. There have been... I was at one of them. Um, I think it was an arena one at, at BBC Two did... Um, and there were lots of personal narratives. But there were also the younger generation in Britain, the diaspora, and many of them have a complete lack of knowledge about this story, and there's an amnesia that's handed down, or maybe it's a repression. And I wanted to ask you if that story, how do you tell that story in terms of Britain and the diaspora? And Because, of course, it's all over the world, this partition story. World, honestly, everybody visits the British Museum, no matter where you are in the world. Similarly, why can't we just come to Amritsar? You know, why can't we just make Amritsar the repository of all the partition stories? Why can't we build it up to be the world's largest archive on partition? Why does London have to be, sorry, to say no. this, the center of the universe? No. <laughs> 
might be. I mean, I might be totally wrong. It probably is the center of the universe. But maybe, you know, Amritsar is like on one edge. Uh, in fact, when I go to Amritsar, I sometimes feel I'm on the edge. I can almost fall off because the other side is boxed up. And there's a border. But I'm saying that uh, why can't we think in terms of it? And this is our idea, really, is to make the world's largest archive on partition in Amritsar. So I would like to take, if you can help me there, take those stories and put them there so that people start visiting. This is the, this is the, the battleground, if you like. This is where the trains, if you remember those terrible trains that left where, with, the, with, with bodies that had been massacred and similarly bodies that came from the other side. This is where it happened. It all happened in Amritsar. So you know when you look there, when you are there, you can feel it which is a different experience altogether. So when, when these kids would give the stories and they would go there, there would be a huge context uh, to those stories, which you may or may not, not find uh, in, in the UK, because yes. there, there are living in very different circumstances. Yeah, now all the fragments would have got yeah. lost on They yeah. certainly may not have crossed the sea. Yes. But I think we should open this now to the audience. Um, we've got about 15 minutes for questions. Um, I think we'll take one at a time, and there's a roving mic. So, could you please make there? sure you Can ask I a question, not deliver a statement? Because I can't um, see them. And yeah. we will try and um, do it. Um, so, there's one over there. Yeah. I, I just want to say something before uh, you know we take the questions. That uh, anybody who wants to get engaged, we are also a voluntary group. So if anybody wants to get engaged with us, either here in, 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 the, in London or anywhere in the world, um, you know, please do get in touch with us. You can, you can uh, talk to me about it, or I have one volunteer here, uh, Anuradha, and you could uh, you know, also talk to her about it. Thank you. Hi, um, I would like to thank you for an amazing presentation. It was very informative. And really... Could you, sorry, could you speak a bit slower or stand up so everyone can hear? Okay, um, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to ask whether the museum at all collaborates with Pakistan organizations in Pakistan, and you mentioned Amritsar's right in the middle, and um, and how it goes about doing so, maybe possibly opening similar sort of um, collaboration with joining two nations together a bit closer. You know, ours, ours is, I, I want to say this again, this is a global museum. It belongs to anybody who wants to give us anything. And we don't, we don't, we don't consider, you know, borders to be uh, so hard that, you know, it's just that, I, I mean, I was only kidding when I said that I, you know, love going to Pakistan. We have very good friends there. And similarly, they come over. They visited, the, some of them have visited the museum as well. Um, but it's, it's a global museum. It's about a humanitarian crisis. So I don't even want to begin to say, have you reached out to this? Yes, we're reaching out to everybody. Whoever was affected by the partition, be there anywhere in the world, be there in, in the UK, in, in, in America, in Bangladesh, in, in India, in Australia, anywhere. Pakistan, wherever, you know, they, they should feel this is their space. And if they can give us the stories, we would like to preserve them in one space. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. You know, there's a mic coming. Uh, my question is very similar to uh, the previous question. Uh, so I have the objection because I find it very difficult 
from Pakistan to travel all the way to Amritsar and to actually visit the museum because I think on this museum everyone has an equal share. There are a lot of people from India or Amritsar. My family was from Amritsar. They migrated to Pakistan. So, and we have never been to Amritsar and I find it quite difficult and challenging. I, I, I don't see my cousins, they will be able to travel to India or Amritsar specifically, especially. So London, I think, is the better option for because you don't have just India, Pakistan, we have Bangladesh and Kashmir as well. So it's like the, the whole India or subcontinent is being divided into too many countries now. So I think if it's London is the base, it will be easy for everyone to travel in because a lot of Pakistani, Indians, Bangladesh, everyone is there. They're studying here, business is there. So, and you are asking everyone to visit Amritsar, I think it's very difficult. Uh, it's not okay. So, okay. so what's your question? So just get me the space. Get get us a space, and we'll we'll do it. I mean, I think I think. Well, there could be another partition museum in in London. I would love to do it, but yes. we need the space. <laughs> could we have the mic there, please? Thank you so much, uh, Lady Kishma. It was such a nice uh, idea, you know, it's, it's such a nice project. And I'm sure we're all dying to visit the museum. Thank you. Just my question is as an oral linguistic historian, I'm very interested in, you, you mentioned that you uh, recorded a lot of interviews with what elderly people now. How did you show these interviews in the museum? So, how did you bring the interviews alive, especially for young people? Okay, um, so that's interesting because this is part of the exhibition plan which we had to make. Uh, most of the interviews, as you can imagine, are extremely long. Uh, some run into like at least three or four hours because when they're speaking, we record all the everything which they tell us. Uh, but what we play in the museum is a very small version, uh, small edited portion, which goes with whichever gallery it's being. Uh, you know, uh, displayed, displayed in. So they all run on uh, monitors. And uh, so, for example, if it's in the gallery of migration, then there would be interviews that we would play there which deal with migration. How did they come? What happened? And they take... So just those two or three minutes. And we have a policy that if anybody is interested, uh, they can ask us for a longer version, but they have to tell us why they want it. Because uh, one thing we want to avoid is any kind of sensationalization. It's a sensitive subject. We want to make people understand the humanitarian side of what people were going through. Um, so, so that's how we do it. So it, it, in a particular gallery, right now we have something like 150 oral histories playing in the museum in different galleries. Okay. Um, yeah, sorry. Can you just, sorry, there's a mic coming. Thank you very much for your talk. And can you tell us what was the reaction of uh, Narendra Modi to your project? He hasn't been there, so I don't know. When, when, when he comes, I'll definitely let you know what he thought of it. We have invited him. He hasn't come as yet. Thank you for the talk. Um, I have been to the museum. I went in April, May this year. 
So it's from formal form, so it's a smaller... It was a smaller, it was a curtain raiser, yes. Now we have all 14 galleries. Oh, wow. We need to go back to yes. 14 galleries. Um, I'm pleased this year that a lot of the discussion has come back to about partition, because for so long, having been brought up and raised in this country, we were taught about independence. And several years ago, I was corrected by a grandmother of mine to say, look how they miseducate you. Look how you're born in this country and they teach you about independence. India was always independent. She, it was Azam in freedom. She regained her independence. It was never about independence, it was about freedom. Um, and the point I wanted to sort of get to was, you mentioned this gallery of Paul. Um, a friend of mine is looking into how this has affected the diasporas, the mindset of generations that were born in, let's say, Britain, but are still carrying this enemy mindset. That is, I mean, in the Pakistani were enemies, and how that's filtered down into the side. Whereas I think what you're doing with the gun report seems to be something that is reuniting and educating people so that you don't have this thing where it's a, there's always the other that's been driven into the, um, the diaspora. No, you're right, because, you know, we have a common shared heritage, even if we are two different countries, um, or three now. Um, so I think we should, we should really, uh, you know, build on that. And culture is always, a, and shared memory and shared pain is always a good place to start, because then you can be empathetic towards each other. Right, um, I think we've got a time for a couple more gentlemen here. <coughs> Can you just make sure you're asking a question, though, rather yeah. than uh, The question there is what we have learned from the political media. I have learned to see of the rural society, society, incoming society, leaving only ethnic minorities alone. Unfortunately, our friend Modi, you see, has been very divisive. Some of the things which he has occurred, Masabai, all that sort of thing, Indutwa and all that, that makes life difficult for a person who believes in a plural society. Can you explain? I think I would not uh, go into that because my museum, I'm here to talk about the museum and I don't want to divert right now, but we can have a conversation about that after this, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Thank you for a wonderful talk. Um, I'm involved in the Migration Museum project. I wondered if, what's the one piece of advice you would give us in trying to establish our permanent home? <laughs> oh, well, just, just be for us stubborn. <laughs> or, uh, you know, you, you already believe in what you're doing, so, you know, I, I'm sure you'll get there. And, uh, uh, you know, as she says, you live in London, and, you know, there is so much going on here, so... Um, and and I, I think the only thing is, is belief, uh, which keeps you going. And um, you know, people people come along when they when they see the you know the passion with which you're working. I'm sure it'll happen very soon. <laughs> yeah. Okay, lady over there, Sorry. the corner. <laughs> You see, what I'm trying to say, what I replied earlier as well, is that this is a global museum, okay? It is to do with anyone 
who was affected. And I, and I want to go back to the fact that this is a humanitarian crisis. The mistake we make is when we divide it into India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Of course, those people, you know, we were all the same. At one stage, we were all just Indian, right? So the roots are the same. So what I'm trying to say is that if anybody has anything they would like to give us for the museum, see, we, we have created something. Now, it's out there in the public. Everybody, it's your responsibility. It's a people's museum. Send us material. We'll put it. That's how the museum is being built. We constantly are appealing. And what we put in there is what people give to us. So it's as simple as that. I think there is too much of this, you know, the, the, like it's almost like when you're in the government, you know, you expect the government to do. Why is the government not building roads or something like that? Well, okay, go out there and talk to your local councillor and say, here is what I would, I would propose. Give them a plan. Give them something. So, you know, I'm saying give us the material. We are constantly appealing for material. So if anyone has anything, please share it with us. I think we've got two more questions. There's one yeah. here. Yeah. Thank you very much for a very inspiring talk. I had the impression that I was listening to uh, history of my family because the same migration happened after the Second World War in Eastern Europe. Polish people the same were exiled, the same Germans. But I have a question. What, what kind of problems, challenges do you experience be, between the idea of creating a museum to the opening of the museum? You know, I, I could write a whole book about that because there were just too many problems. Because when, when you're trying to build something uh, from the people's perspective and without any governmental support, uh, then, you know, there, there would be, there are just too many issues that keep coming up. Uh, but like I was just discussing, if you, if you have the passion and you just want to carry on, I mean, that's, that's all I can say. But there were loads of issues, uh, right from the, the, you know, the money, get, getting things on time, getting the team together. What was, but actually, what was very good, what I found throughout the whole thing of the museum was the number of people who came and worked with us uh, for free most of the time without charging a penny. People took like six months off. So many, at one stage we had something like 35 young volunteers working in our tiny office just, you know, to, to, to see the museum through. They were just passionate about it. But there were also people who, who made designs for us and, and they knew that we were actually borrowing money, like I would borrow from my husband or my you know, children or anyone who was willing to give me money and just put it all together and you know put it put it there so that things could go forward people knew that they knew how how hard it was so and yet um, they they hung in there and you know eventually the people who did hang in there some of them who were doing it professionally did also get paid the rest of us were volunteers so we obviously got nothing but we got the joy and the satisfaction of seeing so many stories enshrined um, in one place and also this whole desire of making the, these archives, which is, uh, you know, we want to make the world, seriously, the world's largest archive and partition. We want it to be in Amritsar. Um, we've got five more minutes. Um, this woman here and then one at the top, and I think we have to stop after that. Thank you. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask, you said you have a lot of schooling children and university children trying to visit and in the UK, I know that there's the Partition History Project is trying to get the teaching of the story of Partition in British schools. Um, I was just wondering whether 
this subject matter is taught in Indian schools? I mean, I, I don't know very much about that, but I wondered if you could share something. About well, it is taught. Um, I remember from my school days as well, but in in a very brief. Uh, fashion. It is not taught in the detail in which when the kids come to the museum, they actually see how it all happened. And so th that is what brings it home to them, that there was another side to independence. And, and that's why it's important. And I always feel the museum is really like, for them, like reading a book. You know, they go through the whole thing with the stories and the documents and things like that. And sometimes it's easier for them then to understand because there are lots of visuals and lots of, you know, things that can make it uh, more comprehensive for them than if it was just taught in a history book. Yeah, that's what she's saying. I think I believe there is a project like that. There is a Rani Mead Trust has yeah, been yeah. working on it. Um, just one this. more question up, up there. Yes. Sorry, Sorry. I'm someone trying over there. Sorry. It, so is this, well, well, let's see if we can do two. But um, uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Talk. Tenacity in starting a museum and doing something which, you know, as you very rightly said, has been a long time coming. For you, um, now that this project is going on its way. What do you think is the best lesson that we have learned as, as, as a mankind, as a human race, and um, specifically in India? And secondly, I know this museum is something new, but why do you think, you know, we've had so many migrations from that point of time, maybe not as big as this one. What is it that we are not ever going to make? Oh, well, yes. I, I think what you raised is a, uh, is a very important uh, point that, you know, that what, what have we learned from this particular uh, partition? I, I think one's heart is always full of sorrow at the loss of life and the, um, yeah, and the number of uh, families uh, who lost family members and, and, the, and, and the difficulties they had to face in order to build a new life for themselves. You know, so I think the lessons are enormous. Even today when we, we are very, you know, quick at saying, okay, you know, maybe we should partition, we should Brexit, we should do this, we should do that. But, you know, the, um, uh, the, the cost is very high, the price is very high, and uprooting people out of their environment and taking them somewhere else uh, is, is very difficult, uh, albeit it may, it may be because of a very good concept, like for example, there was a concept of a different country called Pakistan, and that may be you know, something worth fighting for. But the, the manner in which it was done, that is what we have to examine, you know, that was it really, uh, wasn't it so difficult? Uh, you know, why did we make it so difficult at that time? Why weren't proper preparations put in place so that people could uh, when they were leaving and finding their new homes, couldn't they have been better looked after? You know, so on and so forth. So there are lots of lessons, you know, uh, that, we, that we could learn from this particular thing. And the reason I think why this remains so important is it continues to uh, shape the history of the subcontinent in very many ways. So uh, many, many ways, you know. So, uh, you know... That's, that's why it's important we go back and, and re-examine it every now and then. So just one final question. It's going to be quick because I'm poor. Um, Lady Desire's <laughs> getting exhausted. So one final question. Well, what I have to say is less of a question and more of an appreciation because I come from Amritsar and like, I've lived there. Yeah! <laughs> I've grown up there and my family has lived there ever since the city has existed. So what I have to say is like, what you 
that is a great thing because when you talk about the loss of legacy, growing up there, like driving along the, in the direction of Lahore, I've often talked to my friends and cousins about like what we've lost and like what if that border would not have been there and we would have straight driven into that city. So it's, it's, it's a great effort that you've made because this is something that when we talk about partition, no one has ever talked about the loss of legacy and it has always been in the terms of what, what the generation directly affected has spoken about. But it, it does linger on to the next generation. So it, it isn't that it will die there because the impact is there. Living in the city where the partition took place, I think it's there in the spirit of the city that something that will happen there. So it's a big round of applause for you for making this partition this partition museum happen. Thank you. Thank you. So I think that seems a very, very appropriate place to for us to draw this to a close. It's been an absolutely fascinating and rich discussion. Lots and lots of food for thought and more discussion, I hope, um, and debate. And obviously everyone should try and go to Amritsar. And it remains for me to thank Lady Kishwa Desai for a wonderful talk to all of us. Thank you. <laughs>